Welcome to the first Lord's Day gathering of the new year. We're going to be in Psalm chapter 1. Psalm chapter 1 will begin the new year with the beginning of the Psalter. If you're using a pew Bible from the rack in front of you, that'll be on page 448. We'll be in the top left-hand corner of the page there. And we'll read the entire psalm. Don't worry, it's not long, like uh, Psalm 119 would be, for instance. Uh, We should be through it in fairly short order. Psalm chapter 1, verse 1, this is the word of the Lord for us this morning. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. The wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. Well, if you were an American high school student, uh, maybe in the 90s, 2000s, probably earlier generations before that, you almost assuredly took a course in American literature. Now, I'll disclaimer this where I'm sorry if this brings up traumatic memories from your American literature course. It does a little bit for me. I didn't do as well in that class as I did others. But you would have studied American authors. You would have read books. You would have read stories. You would have read poems, and you would have been asked to try to ascertain what did the author mean? What was he writing about here? Were there any circumstances surrounding this work that affected either how he wrote it or how it would have been received? Lots of different things went into this, much kind of like what we do here on Sunday mornings from the pulpit. One of the authors you would have most assuredly read in an American literature course would have been Robert Frost. Robert Frost wrote many poems, but his most famous poem is undoubtedly called The Road Not Taken. I don't know if it's the most famous. It's the only one I remember from, uh, from American literature, so it must have been fairly important. But I'm going to read it for us. I think it's going to, uh, hopefully, like I said, not cause too many traumatic memories to come to the fore. Perhaps you loved American literature. You're going to really enjoy the next minute or so. But I think it's going to set our course for the sermon this morning, where we're going and how we're going to see what our poem and our author is trying to say to us this morning. The poem goes like this. Two roads diverged in a yellow wood, and sorry I could not travel both, and be one traveler long I stood and looked down one as far as I could to where it bent in the undergrowth. Then took the other as just as fair, and having perhaps the better claim, because it was grassy and wanted wear, though as for that passing there, had warned them really about the same. And both that morning equally lay, and leaves no step had trodden back, Oh, I kept the first for another day, yet knowing how way leads on to way, I doubted if I should ever come back. I shall be telling this with a sigh, somewhere ages and ages hence. Two roads diverged in a wood, and I, I took the one less traveled by, and that has made all the difference. Robert Frost sets before his readers two different paths. He looks down both of them, he tries to see which one he wants to take, he makes a decision, and he looks back and he says he's, he's kind of regretful that he won't be able to go do the other way, but that's often what happens. 
sometimes, but he comes to the end of his poem, and after going down his path, he looks back and he says, there's something, one thing that made all the difference. We're not going to look into what that was for Robert Frost, one, because I'm not good at American literature, and two, because I think it would be outside the scope for what we would want to do this morning. However, our psalm, our poem, our author has presented us with two different ways, two paths, if you will. And there's one thing that we're going to see that makes all the difference in the two paths this morning. What's that? With that, let's look at our first way in the way of what our author describes as a blessed man, the way of the blessed man. Verse one, blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. One of my favorite question, or favorite games uh, on a road trip is a game called 20 Questions. Perhaps you've played it before. It's not incredibly difficult. In fact, my, my sons and I, we played this game at breakfast yesterday morning at Cracker Barrel. Uh, it's just a, somebody thinks of a historical figure, or doesn't even have to be that historical. I think Michael Jordan was one of ours yesterday. Um, but the other people or whoever your audience is, they get to ask a set of 20 questions and they have to have yes or no answers. And as you ask questions, you'll, you'll whittle down who this possible person could be and you get 20 questions to do it. Our author here in the beginning gives us kind of a, a set of no answers to a game of 20 questions. It could go something like this. Does the blessed man, whoever you're thinking of, does he walk in the counsel of the wicked? Does he stand in the way of sinners? Does he sit in the seat of scoffers? And the, que- the answer would be no, no, and no. Now, no questions are good. They're helpful, but they're less specific, depending on how you would ask the question as an answer of yes would be. But this list is very helpful. Now, in 20 questions, most often the answers are not intricately related. They can just be seen at random. And it's worth asking the question here in verse one, is this what our author is doing? Is our author simply saying, here's just three things that the blessed man does not do and moves on? I I don't think that there's less than that. I, I definitely don't think the blessed man does these things. But I think if we leave it there, we're going to miss out on what our author is really trying to do here. You see, there's a a progression in the verbs that's too close to one another to just be discounted as three random actions. And there's some behaviors that continue to escalate that wouldn't make sense that this would just be three random things that our blessed man doesn't do. Let's look at the verbs here. There's a progression. There's walking, and then there's standing, and then there is sitting. This is what you would probably see if you were going to start down a path, if you were going to establish a certain way. Think about walking. If you are walking, you have determined somewhere where you want to go, but you haven't officially settled in it yet. You could turn to the left, maybe a little bit, turn to the right. You could even just stop and turn back and go the other way. It's not too difficult to do that, but you have definitely chosen some way that you're wanting to go. Once you stop and stand, now your decision, your way, your path has become a little bit more solidified. You are standing somewhere on purpose. You've stopped for a reason. The last 
establishment of your way would be to sit down. Sitting down would require a lot more energy, a lot more effort to get up, to stand again, and to start going in a different way. You could think of a more culturally relevant, um, for those of us who have had children, have children, or are going to have children, please don't let this deter you, but you may see a child in a grocery store or a Chick-fil-A that is throwing a hissy fit, if that's a word I can use in a sermon, um, or two words. Once that child sits down and continues this temper tantrum, it's much more difficult to move them out of their position. We all know this. We would have to bend over more. They become like dead weight. Uh, it's very, very difficult. In fact, you will most often hear parents say, stand up, get up, so that they can move them and try to uh, discipline them or correct their behavior. Our sitting down is that last step in establishing a way. There's not just this progressive action, there's, there's behaviors that are associated with each action, and it escalates. We see first is the counsel of the wicked. Counsel would insinuate that somebody is listening to some kind of wicked or unrighteous advice. This is, if we were all to look back on our own sin in our own lives, this is usually the first step in our committing sin. We would probably say we don't just walking down the street and accidentally, bam, we commit a sin. Usually there's some wicked counsel that comes first. And this wicked counsel, we're not just listening to it, we're entertaining it, we're indulging in it, we like it, we love it, we start to lean into it. An example of this would be Eve in the garden. Think about Eve in the garden. The serpent is there, he's tempting her, and she doesn't walk away, she doesn't turn away from him, she doesn't shut him up, she listens. She's listening to the wicked counsel of the serpent. <laughs> we were at the dinner table the other night. Um, we often will talk about stories that we've been reading or things that we've been going through in our time uh, in the Bible and our catechisms at night. And we were talking through this story of Eve in the garden. And I was kind of leading how pride and uh, my wife says, yeah, the serpent is asking her questions. Now, uh, over the summer, my wife hates snakes. Doesn't matter if they're good snakes or bad snakes. If there's a snake in the yard, she wants it dead. She wants it gone. Um, so whenever there's a snake in our yard, I will take the boys out with me just so in case I'm out of town, maybe they could give it a shot because I know there's no way my wife will ever try that. Um, but they go out and they kill the snakes with me. And so Hannah is talking about this serpent questioning Eve and my six-year-old, Asher, just said, Mommy, why didn't Eve just kill the snake so it would stop asking her questions? <laughs> As if the question asking was the real issue here, not the fall of all humanity. But the question, as childish as it is, is revealing on what we so often fail to do, what our blessed man does not do, and that is killing the serpent so that he would stop asking us questions. We don't do that. We listen. We want it. We want to hear more of it. The next escalation would be this way of sinners. The way of sinners, this shows us that our sin is not gone just from listening to wicked counsel. It has manifested itself in some type of behavior. We are actually committing 
sin. This would be reminiscent of what our Lord talks about in Matthew 7 with a healthy tree and a diseased tree that bears fruit. This fruit is the outpouring of this wicked counsel. There's action that is now starting to happen. We are in the way of sinners. The last step in any sinful way is this seat of scoffers. It takes a certain amount of pride, a certain amount of confidence in our sinful ways to go from just committing sin to scoffing other positions. I grew up uh, in my house. Uh, My mom and dad went to the University of Florida, graduated, uh, met there, married. My aunt and uncle the same. My cousins both went there. My grandpa did research there. So I was uh, assuredly down a path of becoming a Florida Gator fan. And I don't not like the Gators now. They, I cheer for them whenever I see them on TV, but I'm not a fan as, as I was when I was a kid. One of the more uh, interesting uh, or entertaining things was listening to Steve Spurrier's press conferences. He was the head football coach of the University of Florida. Spurrier was a very good football coach, very established, very confident, though, and prideful in his ways. In his press conferences, he used to mock or scoff other universities. Um, Florida State University got caught giving away merchandise that wasn't legal, and so he called them Free Shoes University in a press conference, FSU. Didn't like that a whole lot. Um, Auburn University had a dormitory burned down. Thankfully, nobody was hurt, but the article that mentioned it talked about how the library was housing a lot of their books, and those books perished with the building, And Spurrier in his conference said, well, the real tragedy of everything was that 15 of the books had not been colored in yet. Um, (laughs) It's this point where Spurrier was very, very prideful, enough where he would mock other universities in his confidence. We do the same thing. We start to become set in a way, set in our sin, and we'll mock other positions. We see this happening in the culture all around us. It's not just the fact that some people are committing sin, they're so established in it that they are able to scoff at anything else. You combine these progressive actions and these escalations of sin, and you have a way of life that is inherently unrighteous. Our blessed man, we're told, takes no part in any step of this process, not even walking to begin it, not even listening to the counsel of the wicked. He never gets into this wicked process. If we go on to verse 2, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. This would be like a yes answer to a game of 20 questions. We have an immediate contrast of but, that conjunction but, And once again, I think it would be a mistake if we left our passage here and said, well, these are just two random things that the blessed man does. He delights in God's law and he meditates on it. So that's it. Let's move on. Since we've just seen an establishment of a wicked way in verse 1, this but would say that our author is going to talk about a way of life of the blessed man. It's a righteous way. It delights in God's law, meditates on it day and night. Now, it's worth stopping and talking about this word meditates. Meditates uh, in our culture, a lot of Eastern religions 
um, secular worldviews. There's even a magazine, I think, called Mindfulness. I saw when I was researching this, like an entire enterprise of meditation. You can think of yoga in the past few decades. Um, I remember whenever I think of meditation, um, just from my childhood, I think of the Lion King. Uh, there's the baboon, Rafiki, and he goes by this river. He's got his hands out like this. His legs are crossed. He's humming. I don't even know what he's doing. I don't know what the point of that would be. Um, but that's what I always, my mind goes to when I think meditate. See, the, the world and these Eastern religions will say meditation involves emptying your mind of absolutely everything and letting whatever is out there fill it. The scriptural definition of meditation is actually just the opposite. We don't empty our minds. We fill our minds with God's word, with the scriptures. We don't let the outside influence determine what we do. We let God's word fill us and establish our way of life and the way we walk and the where we stand and where we decide to sit. God's word, this meditation, filling ourselves with this is what we're seeing. You don't have to turn with there, but I'm going to go to Deuteronomy chapter 6. When our Lord is asked, what is the greatest commandment? He, deci- he recites Deuteronomy 6, chapter uh, 6, verse 4. I want you to listen for familiar words. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children. You shall talk of them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontlets on your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. We see when we sit, when we rise, when we walk, this word, this commandment is to be with us. The way of life of the blessed man is driven, it's centered, and it's established on God's word as we have faithfully sung in our hymns this morning. If this is the way of the blessed man, it's built on God's word, what fruit does it produce? Verse 3, he is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season and its leaf does not wither. One of the more fortunate things about our, my wife and I, our family's life in the military is we got to move around a lot, got to see a lot of different places. Uh, one of the places we were taken to were the high deserts uh, in California, so think like an hour, two hours north of Los Angeles in the Mojave Desert, and then we were at Tucson, Arizona, in southern Arizona. Lots and lots of desert, and the desert has a beauty of its own. Uh, sunsets in the desert are absolutely unbeatable. If you're ever there, make sure that you see sunrises and sunsets. Um, but the thing about the desert that is most uh, that you'll notice right away, especially if you come from a place like Greenville, Greenville, is everything's dead. Nothing is really alive. There's no vegetation, there's no green, there's no plants. The only thing that is alive is the cacti, which is, for going with literature, that is the proper way, plural of cactus, don't say cactuses. We got scolded for that uh, in Arizona when we tried. Um, The cacti are green, that's about it. 
The, the creatures that are alive are not the cute little cuddly ones that we normally have here, like chipmunks and squirrels and rabbits. It's scorpions and rattlesnakes and tarantulas, the things that uh, can only survive in such harsh conditions. But there is one place where life is actually abounding. Um, if you were to ask somebody, are there rivers in the desert? Most people would probably look at the landscape and say no, but that would actually be incorrect. There are rivers in the desert, they just don't have water in them, which is kind of weird for us to think about. Most of the water in the rivers is underground. Now, they fill up during times of rain or monsoon. That happens in southern Arizona a little bit. Um, but the only way you can tell where the rivers are is you see trees, you see shrubs, you see bushes, you see actual things that are alive. There's green. And the only reason why they're able to survive in such harsh conditions is because they're planted right near the source of life in the water. Our blessed man's way is planted. The, the verb here actually is looking at being transplanted, being picked up and placed near a stream of water, the source of life. In this, the fruit is actually able to be produced. These actions that are godly, that are righteous. The leaf does not wither. This tree is being sustained through the conditions and it prospers, it perseveres. Now, we shouldn't think of this word prospers as in uh, like you'll have a lot of money, you'll drive a really nice car, your kids will never get sick, um, the, they'll all get into the best colleges, you'll be able to pay for it. Uh, not prosperity like that. The word here prospers means it endures. It is seen to. It completes its task. The elements are no match for the constant source of life that's being provided to the blessed man's way. There's no reason why any tree in the desert should survive other than the fact that it's planted right near the source of life. We end our look at the blessed man's way this morning, seeing that it takes no part in the path of unrighteousness. Rather, it's driven, it's centered, and it's established in God's word. This produces fruit like a tree that is planted near the source of life, no matter what the conditions are around it. Well, now that we've considered the first way of the blessed man, let's look at the way of the wicked. Verse four, the wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. Uh, I love verses like this because it's, it's a gift to the preacher of some sorts, uh, at least for saving time in a sermon, because it says the wicked are not so, which would insinuate, okay, everything, verses one through three about the blessed man's way, just do the opposite, and that's the wicked man's way. You can almost kind of say that. Um, but our author gives us an illustration. An illustration that once again goes back to agriculture. It helps us out significantly. It says, the wicked are not so, but they are like chaff that the wind drives away. Chaff is that really brittle, frail, nasty stuff on the edge of some types of vegetation, and it's dead. It's been deprived of nutrition. It's been deprived of the source of life. When the elements reach it, scorching heat, gust of wind, 
critters in the desert that nobody wants to pet. They can do nothing but get blown away. The way of the wicked has nothing in common with the blessed man's way because it is removed from the source of life that is centered on God's word. Like in the case of the parable of the sower that our Lord told, the word is absent. In each one of the cases where the the plant withers away, where the seed does not produce fruit, the word is scorched. It's choked or it's simply plucked away. What all three of these things have in common is the word is absent. It's absent. The only plants that grow and produce fruit are those that are kept by God's word. If the way of the wicked is opposite to the way of the blessed man, then so is the fruit. Look at verse 5. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. There's a foreshadowing of judgment here. We see that in the midst of this judgment, the way of the wicked is powerless. When our author says, the wicked will not stand, this would assume that the wicked actually wants to stand. They want to try to get up. They want to try and rise, but they can't. Because the way of the wicked, in our context here, can't move. It can't endure. It's deprived. It's weak. It's powerless. It's frail. Just like chaff that grows and becomes brittle and frail and eventually is just blown away, this is the fruit of the wicked. The fruit of the wicked is nothing. There is no fruit. It can't do anything but shrivel up because it's away from this stream of life and be blown away by the elements because it's unable to do anything else. That was a really quick look at the way of the wicked but we're going to go turn to our last look this morning and see what is the end of each one of these ways. What is the end of the ways? How do these both, what are the destinations of each one of these paths? Verse six, for the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. Once again, we have a sharp contrast. We have a contrast. We've got our conjunction, but again, We'll get to that here in a second. Let's look at the first one. The Lord knows the way of the righteous. So when we're looking at where are these ways going to end up, the first one says the Lord knows the way of the righteous. So when we think about this word knows, is this the author just saying that God has knowledge of this way, that he knows about it? I don't think that's what's happening here. Um, It would be almost superfluous. How's that for literature word? Um, It would be almost uh, unnecessary to say that God has knowledge of something. Of course God does. He knows everything. His knowledge is perfect. It's infinite. It is all-encompassing, and it lasts forever. Everlasting, everlasting. God's knowledge about everything is there. I don't think that's what our author is saying. More likely, when it says that the Lord knows the way of the righteous, this is in context with the rest of the psalm, this is the Lord keeping this way. He is establishing this way. He's watching over this way. He is seeing to this 
way. The Lord knows this way. This is like that stream of water that continues to provide life to the tree that is transplanted next to it. The end of this way is flourishing. It's prospering. The eventual end of the way of the blessed man is life and not death. We go to the next conjunction here, but, but the way of the wicked will perish. We return to this foreshadowing of judgment. This judgment here in the last verse is kind of showing us where we ultimately end up. The word perish here, when it's used elsewhere in scripture, we're going to see it's also used in Psalm 2, but this has the, uh, I guess, the assumption of finality, of eternity. Eventually, the way of the wicked will end and come to nothing. The way is futile. The end of this way is death as our scriptures will say later on. The last thing we should consider when we look at the end of each one of these ways, we're going to go back to Robert Frost's poem. Because Frost told us in his poem that something made all the difference. And I know there's some type A personalities in here who've probably been waiting for the entirety of the sermon for for us to kind of figure this out so they could write it down. That would be me if I were sitting in the audience. That's the only reason why I say that. Um, But there's something in our poem that makes all the difference. We just need to figure out what it is. There's several things it could be. Uh, We've got a contrasting of righteous and wicked behavior. That could be one thing. This uh, This could be considered a wisdom literature in the scriptures, that genre, where most often you see that if you will behave a certain way in accordance with God's law, then prosperous and fruitful things will happen. If you go against God's law, then detrimental uh, things will happen and it won't work out so well for you. We've probably even noticed this in our own lives. When we have made decisions that are in accordance with God's word, usually those decisions end up better for us than if we were to go and outside of God's word and make decisions that are in rebellion against it. Certainly in the, in the psalm. The psalms will go in to carry this out. We've seen that in our study of the book of James even to some extent. I don't think that's, a, I don't think that's not in here. Perhaps a foreshadowing of coming judgment. Judgment is all throughout the scriptures. It is pointing us to a way that God redeems his people. He talks about how we fall in Genesis 3, and then when we complete our study of the book of Revelation, we see that there's a judgment. And all throughout there, it's hinted at and it's pointed to. It's definitely in our psalm here this morning. Is that what makes all the difference in these two separate ways? Once again, I don't think we should discard a foreshadowing of judgment, just like we shouldn't discard righteous versus wicked behavior. Those are all really important things to take away from our psalm. But our psalm opens up with the words, blessed is the man. Blessed is the man. Could this blessed man have something to do with the difference in the two ways? Who is the blessed man? Is this 
just an example? Is this something that the author's lobbing up to say, hey, look, look over here, we should be like this? Is it a uh, fictitious prototype? Is it an ideal person that doesn't actually exist, but we say, hey, it would be really great if there was a man like this, you should be like this. You should delight in God's law and you should meditate on it day and night. Is that what we see here? Or is this an actual man, an actual person who lived or was going to live or was living at this time in space and in time and in history? Is this somebody that we can actually look to and see with our own eyes? I think it's important to really hone down on this question. The Psalter opens up with it. It's probably a good idea to determine the identity of the blessed man. And I think in order to do that, we need to dig into a few other parts of scripture where we see the way of the blessed man pedestaled and highlighted. I'm going to turn to Deuteronomy 17. You can turn there with me if you want. You don't have to. I'm going to read it out loud. But I'm going to be in verses 18 through 20. God is giving the people laws about Israel's king. He talks about how it's going to be from among their brothers. They're not supposed to acquire many wives or many horses. We know that doesn't happen. Um, His heart is not supposed to turn away excessive silver and gold. You can read about Solomon. See, that doesn't happen. But then he gets here to verse 18. It says, And when he, the king, sits on the throne of his kingdom, he shall write for himself in a book a copy of this law, approved by the Levitical priests, and it shall be with him. And he shall read in it all the days of his life, that he may learn to fear the Lord his God by keeping all the words of this law and these statutes and doing them, that his heart may not be lifted above his brother's and that he may not turn aside from the commandment, either to the right hand or to the left, so that he may continue long in his kingdom, he and his children in Israel. In Deuteronomy 17, we have a king, an actual king who is supposed to read God's law all the days of his life, keep the rules and statutes, not lift his heart up above his brothers, not turn aside so that he can continue long in his kingdom. This king's way is built upon God's Law, his way is driven by it. If you want to turn with me again, just a few pages to the right, I'm going to be in Joshua chapter one. We're going to see another place where we'll, we'll hear familiar words and phrases. I'm going to start in verse five. This is the Lord talking to Joshua. No man shall be able to stand before you all the days of your life. Just as I was with Moses, so I will be with you. I will not leave you or forsake you. Be strong and courageous, for you shall cause this people to inherit the land I swore to their fathers to give them. Only be strong and very courageous, careful to do according to all the law that Moses, my servant, commanded you. Do not turn from it to the right hand or to the left, that you may have good success wherever you go. This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night, so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it. For then you will make your way prosperous, and then you will have good success. Once again, we have a leader in Israel who's supposed to do all that the law of Moses commands, not turn aside to the right or the left. The book of the law is not supposed to depart from his mouth. He's supposed to meditate on it day 
and night to do according to all that is written in it so that his way will be prosperous. Once again, a leader in Israel whose way is built upon God's law. I've already kind of mentioned it, but if we were to do a study throughout the entire scriptures and go find this king in Israel, I'll save you the time, there isn't one. Every king throughout Israel's history did not keep Psalm 1, Deuteronomy 17, Joshua 1. No king ever did all that these things commanded, never actually encompassed the way of the blessed man in Psalm 1. If we're going to finish our game of 20 questions this morning, the last place we're going to turn is Psalm 2. Psalm 2 is uh, very complementary to Psalm 1. In fact, I would go beyond that. I would say, uh, along with most Hebrew scholars, that Psalms 1 and 2 are most likely supposed to be read together as an introduction to the Psalter. That's how they thought that most of Israel's uh, worship would have used these psalms. Several reasons for that. There's no headings. There's no titles. uh, If you look in here, there's no superscriptions. It doesn't say who the author is, and there's no breaks between Psalms 1 and 2. You'll start to see that pick up in Psalm 3, moving into Psalm 4. The word meditate, we've talked about this morning in, Psalm, in verse 1-2, is actually the same word, the ESV translates it plots, but it's in 2-1 where the nations raged and the uh, people's plot in vain. That word is meditate, same Hebrew word. It shows a contrast between meditating on God's law and meditating against him. There's a way that perishes, verse 1-6, verse 2.12, but the most convincing evidence to this is something, uh, a Hebrew uh, poetic uh, technique, if you will, called an inclusio. An inclusio would be like a bookend of one verse and then down to uh, another. It contains, it includes, and encompasses an entire set that's meant to be read together. Much like on a bookshelf, you would have bookends of the shelf. We see the Psalm 1 opens up with, blessed is the man, And Psalm 2 ends with, blessed are all. This is a very popular technique to to show unity in a certain passage or text. So with this information, let's go to the last six verses of Psalm 2. As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now, therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. We have a king, an actual king. This is Yahweh's anointed son, the covenant God of Israel to his people. This is his son. The entire world is under his dominion. He has the power to judge, to destroy in his anger, in his wrath. In fact, he's the one who perishes the way of the wicked. 
we go back to our inclusio, the blessed. It would suggest that the blessed man of Psalm 1-1 is the same blessed one that we are to take refuge in, in 2-12. So the end of the ways, church, what makes all the difference? I think we can summarize it in this. Jesus, our Lord, is the blessed man. He is the perfect king who keeps his own in his way and perishes the wicked in theirs. You see, Jesus didn't just delight in God's law. He didn't just meditate on it day and night. He didn't just perfectly obey it. He fulfilled the entire thing. He brought it to completion so that we could take refuge in him. If Jesus doesn't do these things, there is no refuge. There is no safety. Just as Moses was hidden in the cleft of the rock as God's glory passed by, so Jesus is our cleft in the rock. He is our refuge. He is our protection against the anger and wrath of God that we so righteously deserve. There's a way that the blessed man causes to perish in his anger, in his wrath. It's opposite to God's law. It's removed from the life-giving stream. It shrivels up and it is driven away. Like a piece of rotten fruit that sits on your kitchen countertop, it's good for nothing except to be thrown into the trash. This is the way of the wicked. If you find yourself here this morning and this is your way, if you know that you are apart from this life-giving stream, Peter's audience in Acts chapter 2 had the same feeling. It says they were cut to the heart, and they asked, what shall we do? If you find yourself here in the way that perishes this morning, what shall we do? And the response would be of Psalm 2, kiss the son. Kiss the son, but don't kiss him on your own terms. Don't kiss him in rebellion as Judas did in Gethsemane. We kiss the son in submission to his lordship. We confess with our mouths that Christ is Lord. We believe in our hearts that God has raised him from the dead. We repent, turn away from our sin, put our faith and trust in this blessed man. We take refuge in him. The only way to blessing is refuge in the Son of God. The Son of God who came here for us. He didn't lift himself above his brothers, but he went to the cross. He went to the cross for me and for you to save us from the wrath that he was one day going to judge the world by. He atones for our sins. He gives us a righteousness that we don't have. Remember why we can say that you have the words of eternal life. Why do we have this life? It's because we've been transplanted by the stream. It's because it's the spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. Only by taking refuge in the blessed man, in the Lord Jesus Christ, do we find ourselves out of the way that perishes and into the way of life. Jesus says as much in John chapter 14. He says, I am the way and the truth and the life. No man comes to the Father except by me. For those of us who have taken refuge in the blessed man this morning, 
I want to encourage you. I want to tell you to take rest, to take joy that the Lord keeps this way. He sees to this way. He prospers this way. Remember your refuge in the blessed man. Remember your faith, your repentance, your turn away from sin. This is our only hope and our only stay. But let us not also forget that God is conforming us to the image of his son, the son of Psalm 2, the blessed man of Psalm 1. If we are to imitate him, let us walk in his way. Let us wake up in the morning and go to God's word. Let us memorize it. Let us have it on our mouths, on our lips, in our idle moments, in our spare thoughts. Let's not go to Instagram or Facebook or Twitter or TikTok or ESPN.com or Etsy or whatever it is, whatever distractions. Let our spare moments and our spare thoughts go to God's word. In the evenings, let us talk about it with our children, with our husbands, with our wives. Let us pray through them. Let it be a part of every single part of our lives. As we go into this new year, let us evermore find ourselves in the way of the blessed man, warming our hearts by centering, driving, and establishing our lives in God's word. We'll conclude with this. Isaiah 40 says that we, the people of the earth, are grass. We're grass. Not grass as in really nice grass. Grass as in the grass that's here today, that's gone tomorrow. It's a mist. It's a vapor. It says that when the breath of the Lord blows on it, it's blown away. Same passage says that the grass, that's, that's me, that's you, The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. Likewise, Jesus would go on to say that heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. There's a way that perishes, and there's a way that prospers. One is found raging against the blessed man, and the other is found by taking refuge in him. What makes all the difference? What is our hope? What is our stay? It is the Lord Jesus Christ, the eternal begotten word and son of God. He makes all the difference in our two ways this morning. Let us go from here established in his way, built on his words that will never fade away and our hearts warmed in the word of God that stands forever. Let's pray. God, when we even think about the fact that you've given us your word, that you've revealed yourself at all to a people, to a creation that has rebelled so violently against you, Father, who can even contemplate the grace that that must mean, the grace that that takes to reveal yourself in a way, not just to show how powerful you are and how insignificant we are, although that is certainly true, but the word is revealed to save a people to yourself, to draw people to yourself in repentance and faith, in your blessed man, in your one and only son. We thank you that your word is powerful enough to save us, to keep us, and to persevere us to the end. That is our prayer, Father, as we go from here, that your word would dwell in us richly,
and that we would take refuge in the blessed man of Psalm 1. We love you because you first loved us. We give you the thanks and the praise and the glory today for your kingdom and yours alone. We pray these things in the name of the blessed man, our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.